the winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 64th episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Alva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. I hope this finds you well and happy wherever and whenever you may be. This episode is a chat with Gremlin Napier of Fanmore in the northwest of Mull. Gremlin came to Mull in the late 70s and has been here since then with interludes for adventures in Africa. Our conversation today goes all over the place. We talk about the origins of his name, the incredible work of his parents, his school days, life in the 60s and 70s, and the people he met in the area when he moved to the island. There's a couple of trigger warnings for you with this episode. Our conversation features strong language. In fact, some of the finest swearing I've heard in a long time. References to dead bodies at about 10 minutes into it, and references to the smoking of marijuana. I'm so chuffed to share this conversation with you. We recorded it over a year ago, and I've only just managed to sit down and edit it and get it to you. Gremlin has one of the most beautiful voices you could wish to hear. It's been an absolute delight to spend time with his words again. Without further ado, I'm delighted to pass you over to Gremlin Napier. Who are you? Who the the hell am I? Uh, Known as Gremlin. I've been known as Gremlin since I was eight. I know, that's not true. I was known as Bloody Gremlin before Gremlin. I dropped the bloody because it didn't fit in. Uh, Bloody Gremlin because I was a mischievous eight-year-old. And I was on my first skiing trip to Val d'Isere in the winter of 57-58. And I liked it so much, the name, that, and I really disliked my parents' idea of a Christian name, which I'm not telling you about anyway. They'll know. I mean, they can all, everyone can find out. I don't know. How does one describe one's life? Lots of trips, lots of interests. I travelled to France every holidays for the first 17 years of my life. Mm. Uh, first to the south of France and then to the ski. Where was home, uh, first of all? Hertfordshire. Right, okay. Whereabouts in Hertfordshire? Oh, God. Uh, Radlett on the A5 or Watling Street. Okay. No, it was convenient at the time because of my father's work. Um, he had originally been trained by St Bartholomew's Hospital and during the war the hospital moved out of London to St Albans and we they were living there where my brother was born and they moved a little closer to London, fractionally closer, closer to London um, prior to me being born. What about your parents then? When you mentioned, I guess, your dad was a doctor to start off with. He, he, trained, as a, he trained as a surgeon. Um, in 1938, and gosh, so did he see service here in the UK in the arts or? Yeah, he he worked for he worked for Butts until 1946. He qualified in 42, and he continued working at Butts in Hilland, which is the country hospital they have. Yeah, 
um, until 1946 when he was absolutely fed up with cutting off arms and legs and treating as shrapnel wounds. Fuck that. <laughs> Quite rightly so, yeah. Totally. Um, so he switched to what he was much more interested in, which was anatomy. And so he studied anatomy for the next, I guess, 20 years. Wow. And then your mum, where's, where, where's your mum fit into this? Oh, God. Well, they must have got married. Um, where was your mum from originally? Liverpool. Really? Yeah. Ah, centre of town or outside or? Oh, centre of town. Wow. Irish origins? Yeah. Right. Communist? Don't think so. Uh, no. Not, not Alexi Sale. Oh, not Alexi Sale. No, 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 no. No, I mean, they were, I think they, they were almost the snooty end of town. Right, I see. Right. <laughs> My grandfather had a... A solicitor's legal business. So there were two legal businesses in the family. Wow. And they all had offices in downtown Liverpool. And my great-grandfather had been... Um, he was there before, and he was a member of Parliament since, I don't know, 1890 or something like that. Wow. Right up until about 1920. Um, what was he? Was he a Whig? Was he a Tory? Was he Tory? Right. I'm sure we've seen Parliament change a lot because that's is that just before the Labour movement starts, isn't it? Really? I don't know. You would know that better than I. I don't. I'm not. I mean, my history lessons were all about Plantagenets. Yes. <laughs> Nothing yeah. modern. That's white blood cells, isn't it? Plantagenets. Oh, no, no, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so your dad then, was he from London originally himself as well? His family were all had all originated from, I guess, from Thirsk. Is that Devonshire? That's North Yorkshire. North Yorkshire. Oh, right. Ah. What have they been doing there? Well, my grandfather, um, my father's, Oh, father's no father's great. Now my great grandfather John Russell Napier um, was a minister of the church, the English church, mm-hmm. and had been born in Thirsk and taken up his practice as a minister at the Anglican Church in Preston, Lancashire, and was then, of course, allowed to play first-class cricket for Lancashire. Ah. And he eradicated the Australian touring team. On the... <laughs> he caused damage by his by his bowling. And is cricket something that's run in the family as well? No, no, I don't know. My father, my father, played in his first first eleven at, at school in England in Christman late twenties. Right. But he'd already got, got a fucked up leg mm-hmm. because he'd, he'd broken his leg in 1927 in three places on a cross-country run. Oh, yeah. That must have horror. Well, I mean, yeah, but they didn't, didn't know much about orthopaedics in those days. Right. Orthopaedics was in its absolute infancy. Yeah. And so it wasn't, you know, much later and towards, you know, 
the end of the 30s and the beginning of the war when you know more was actually being done to sort people's arms and legs out yeah instead of just chopping the bastard off yeah yeah totally so was that something he carried with him did he carry his leg with him for his yeah he did i mean it was one leg was two and a half inches shorter than the other by the time everyone had had a dig at his leg god and he, and he lived in a raised boot he always had a raised boot and so he couldn't run in the first 15 so he had to he had a runner Gosh, that's amazing. So that, was there any sort of corrective surgery done later on in his life at all? No, nah, I mean, well, I mean, I'm a, I don't know how many. I mean, the point was, the, the difficulty was really that his father was permanently stationed in Calcutta and he was at school in England. Okay. And there was a guardian, but the guardian was fucking useless. Um so what, was the, the, what was his father doing in, in Calcutta? Was oh, he was a professor of tropical medicine and parasitology. Wow. That's amazing. Well, another doctor in the family. I mean, you know, so we, had, we got god botherers and doctors. <laughs> <laughs> one keeping them for God, one other one keeping them away from God for a bit longer. Uh, that's amazing. So the, your, your dad's done uh, anatomy for um, uh, after his, his surgical career. He did really from 1946. He was at St. Thomas's in London between 46 and 54. Then he left St. Thomas's and went to the medical school of the Royal Free. So I just long, I have long memories of going to visit Parr at work. And, you know, being in order to get from Pa's office, you had to pass the, the chemical laboratory mm. and it was just full of fumes and smells of acids of all sorts and then all sorts of things lying in bottles. I mean, there was always a, a human faeces in, in formal formaldehyde sitting on a shelf in Pa's office. I mean, but there's, you know, one got used to those things quite... And then you went through the, the cutting-up room and there'd be all these bodies lying, you know, under sheets and you'd just see the feet sticking out. And, you know, they would all be in varying states of cut-upness. Analysis. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> Not quite psychoanalysis, <laughs> something's sort of a little bit more thorough. <laughs> well, I'm just... And, you know, so, I mean, yeah, we, you know, we were faced with death I suppose, from a very early age. Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, part of, you know, this is what happens in the end. If you don't go in the ground, you come here. <laughs> Both your parents achieved uh, world renown in their fields. Can you say a little bit about how they went into, th what they went into, into primatology? Well, primatology was, I think, really my papa's baby all along. I mean, he set up the first unit of primatology in Britain. Officially, I think it started in about 62. I think he was, I know he suddenly did radio. He was on the radio, on BBC radio mm -hmm. from about, I don't know, 57 or 58, talking. One of his programmes was called Apes in the Attic. <laughs> and he loved radio because he... I come from a family of actors as well. 
And so limelight, either acting or in you know your voice being portrayed or your or your visual in your visual when television came, yeah. then you know he was definitely in his limelight. He loved television and did as much of it as he could. So yeah, I mean primatology. It was an un, it was an unknown science. It was almost an invented science. I mean, there were people like Louis Louis Leakey in Kenya, who was, or Tanzania, who was digging out fossil man out of Aldivari Gorge, um, and so going from the human body. I mean, you know, if you work with bodies all the time, and the human bodies, and then you look at our closest relative, chimpanzee. And you think, well, you know, you look at, you know, the structure of the bones, the structure of the foot, the structure of the hand, how their hand has to be adapted to our hand and how how the bone structure changed from walking on all fours to walking bipedally. I um, mean, all these things. I mean, he was fascinated by arms and legs. That was really, you know, that, that was really his scene. And how did your mum fit into that then as well? Because oh, she... she just became a student. Right. Just like all the other students. I mean, she'd got, you know, she'd got us into school and she felt, you know, she didn't have to do the mummy role, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or continue it to the same degree. Um, so, yeah, she just... I mean, she'd had snippets all her life about, you know, the way Pa was the direction he seemed to be heading. And so it was just a case of him sitting and sitting down and just teaching her everything. Wow. wow. I mean, knowingly, he's the only student he actually slept with. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is actually, here's your cousin. No. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, the... So your mum, uh, how did they meet? Where did they? Oh meet? God, it was an arranged, an arranged meeting. Really? Yeah. Between the two families. Well, between yeah, it was both my parents' best friends were Jewish, mm-hmm. um, and they, of course, all Jews in London know each other because it's a very small community. Yeah. Um, and. They organised a cocktail party, and that was it. Lovely. Oh, that's really nice. But I didn't, I, you know, in the obituary, was, she, my mother married a, a penniless medical student. I mean, her family had lots of money, mm-hmm. being in the legal trade, mm-hmm. and his family had zilch. I mean, you know, if you're a doctor, some parasitologist, some medical scientist, I mean, you know, I mean, you you earn your stripes by treating <laughs> treating people's health. Yeah. But you're not you're not going to be bound with riches. Yeah. And if your father, if your father, father was a doctor and his father was a godbotherer, and his father was a a tailor, I think. I think Richard Napier, who was John Russell Napier's father in Thirst, 
was a bespoke tailor. Wow. Which is quite odd. And somewhere prior to that, they must have, I mean, they must have come from Scotland at some point, but when I haven't really quite got to the bottom of, I think I'd have to go to Thirsk and find out. Your parents work with primatology. Did that keep them uh, here in the UK writing or were they travelling abroad? No, they didn't travel abroad. My father being so lame, he couldn't travel. Right. He couldn't go and do field work. Right. I mean, it would have been just too difficult. Yeah. No, I mean, he, you know, he wanted to be a teacher, basically. He did his own research and he had, luckily, he had so many students. Yeah. He had, you know, reams of students have all gone on now. They might, might be all quite old now. And the new kind of lot of the coming through, uh, you know, their teachers were my past students. An example is Alice Roberts. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was a student of Bernard Wood at Liverpool. He was a student of Paz. So, I mean, there's all these all these connections. So, I mean, he must have taught them well. And, I mean, I know every, all his students say Pa was a wonderful teacher because he made the story fun. And that's it. That's the art of teaching is you make it fun. And within their careers, your mother and father, what would you say that they were most proud of? Don't know. No, I mean, they were proud of everything, I guess. You know, I mean, they wrote books and they wrote, you know, they worked very hard. But a lot of people in academia are unsung heroes. I mean, they don't, you don't actually, I mean, you're, you're delivering science to the people. And you're in you you've written a book, and it might be a textbook for for students, but you know, I mean, who's John Napier? I mean, it, you know, it's like the first steps of reading Latin. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know who public who, but I mean, it was made for a school, yeah. and there were thousands of them, and but it was the the first steps in learning Latin. Yeah which we all had to do at school. Yeah. Um, and it's like first steps in anatomy, first steps in anthropology, first steps. I mean, people have to start somewhere. I mean, if they got, you know, most people have got, you know, I mean, if they're interested in biology, then they're more likely to be interested in zoology. Yeah. And so it's a, lot of, a lot of has stemmed through zoology. Your mum stepped into studying with your dad when you went to school. Where did you go to school? Oh, God, private education. Right. Um, a great uncle, who would have been an uncle of my mother's, left all his money to privately educate his ten great nephews and nieces. Wow. That's incredible. So they were all privately educated. Gosh. So where did you go? Did you go to Stowe? Did you go to... Oh, God, fuck no. No, no, no. I mean, I went to a, I went to a good prep school, uh-huh. um, but my secondary education, another sort of 
public school was awful. Mm-hmm. They were all they were all into God, right? Okay, and you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, just oh, just a waste of time. Yeah, I mean, and naturally, I rebelled. I mean, yeah. How did that rebellion take? What form did that rebellion take? Oh, just by not behaving. I got into, got into smuggling. Oh, fantastic. Contraband? Uh, well, contraband in the school. Mm. So what, what like, sort of... Oh, was... wine, usually. Wine and fags. Uh, I always remember my housemaster approached me one day and said, little bird tells me that you are, <laughs> that you are up to mischief. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I only sold to the wealthier boys, the people in my house. Fantastic. But then again, you know, I would gather some friends and we'd go down to the woods and we'd cra- crack a bottle of wine and we'd all get pissed. I mean, quite normal things. Yeah. So who were your friends at that period? That oh, I don't know any of them now. Really? No, none at all. Right. They were all boring fucks. I mean, really, I mean, you know, I've got nothing in common with any of them. Uh, I, I, mean, I have one friend from pre-prep school I've known since I was four, who, but I, I mean, who I stay, still communicate with occasionally. But, you know, the rest, no, they, they were a waste of space. I just feel that they were all what I would have called in those days really terribly straight. They're white, they're going to marry another pretty white girl, they're going to put on a suit and go to work. And they're going to be members of the cricket club and the tennis club and they're going to go to, I don't know, I don't know. They sound frightfully boring. Not the sort of wild people I preferred to hang out with. So who were the big characters that, that showed you the kind of life that you wanted when you were younger then? It was just in the air. I mean, you know. When I got out of school with my two O levels, mm-hmm. I you know, experienced freedom and away from institutions. And so, what did I do? Well, I smoked a joint. Mm-hmm. What else was I doing in 1968, 7? Mm-hmm. And I went on smoking joints till to, to this day. It probably isn't good for me, but it helps me by. <laughs> <laughs> and so, do you remember what the early days of of smoking like that was? That what was it? A sense of contraband around that then as well? Oh well, I mean, but in, the point is, when marijuana, it's been. I mean, they've been making hashish for about three thousand years. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mainly in places like North Africa, I mean, yep. in in the is, Islamic centres of the world. I, mean, I never found it addictive. I found it Moorish. Mm. Um, <laughs> no, because you'll do without it sometimes. Yes. I mean, you and you don't suffer necessarily from, you know, desire or you know. I mean, I mean not like you know, not like class A drugs. No. Mm. I mean, it was a, there was a about ten years ago there was a there was an advisor to the government who. Oh, that's right. He's the, he was a guy. For, he was at Imperial College, and in London, a very highly respected institution. And quite often, you know, during this pan, recent pandemic, 
events. They've been consulting people from Imperial College. And he was, he specialized in drugs and alternative treatments. He wanted to change the drug laws, the the law on marijuana Mm -hmm. in this country. And he, oh, the government wanted to change it Mm -hmm. from grade C to grade B. And and he said, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It should be dropped from C to D. And the government said, no, no, no. No, you've got to put it up to B. And he turned around to them and said, none of you are scientists. Not one of you. I'm the scientist and I'm telling you you should drop it. Yeah. And, you're t- well, I'm, and so he resigned. He said, fuck you, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you're not listening... To the science. Yeah, not listening to the science. That's what Boris is being accused of at this moment. Yep, yeah. Not listening to the science, not listening to the experts. Yeah. So, yeah, so... (laughs) Professor Nutt, very appropriate (laughs) for a druggy bastard. Uh, Now, I saw him on... on First name, Office. Hmm? First name office. I don't know. No, no, no. office not. Oh, office. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. Well, so, um, so yeah. I mean, yeah. But I mean, not all the time. I smoke periodically. I smoke. Have a tendency to smoke in the day. I make very good marmalade under the influence of, um, and everyone likes it. And I don't spike my marmalade oh, God. because the price of a jar would go escalating. <laughs> I'm, I'm five pounds, but if it's got substance in it, well, you might have to put up to ten plus pounds, <laughs> so I can make a suitable profit on my illicit goods. Um, Start the day of the gremlin way. <laughs> yeah. But, so, nineteen sixties London was it quite boring? No, I mean there was lots of things. Well, I mean you know. <laughs> I mean, the flower power and yeah. hippies and marijuana and people wearing garish clothes. Were you at that famous Rolling Stones gig? No, I went to... The only ones I saw in Hyde Park were Pink Floyd. Oh, yeah, Dancer. And Blind Faith. Wow. And... I think those are the only two. That period of Pink Floyd, that's when Sid Barrett was with them. Mm. So you saw Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd live? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so but, that was the, but that was then, you know, I mean, <sighs> but that's what it was available. I mean, all these bands were available. What did you think? Were they any good? Well, I don't know. I was probably off my head. <laughs> As everyone else was. Yeah. I mean, had I been more of a Pink Floyd aficionado, I mean... Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of excerpts from the, the album Adam Hart Mother. Oh right, okay, that's later then. Ah, yeah. yes, okay. No, I mean, it's not the not the Amagamba yeah, yeah, time yeah. or before. Yeah. No, it was much later. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, nice. Because um, yeah, Nick, uh, Nick uh, Holmes down at uh, Aris, he was at school with them. No, it wouldn't surprise me. because uh, they're Cambridge boys, but uh, yeah. Ah oh, man, so yeah, London, London, nineteen sixties. Counterculture events, all sorts of things. Where, where did your adventures take you? 
I wanted to do something with animals, um, wildlife. Um, so I went to, we'd always had long association with zoos. And my father was on the, on about six committees of London Zoo. Um, and by that, by his interest in, in primates and the beginning of his whole primatological thing, um, which really stems back, as I said, to the late 50s. We, we started going to zoos where they kept a lot of primates. And there was certain zoos that were specifically good at keeping primates and, and breeding with primates. And so these are the places we went to. Um, we had a long association with a zoo in the Midlands near Tamworth. Mm. Toy Cross. Oh yeah. Um, so I went to work for them. I went to work as a ship traveller. How long were you at Toy Cross Zoo? I was there first time six months. Then I went to the States because by that time my folks had moved to the States. Right. To the Smithsonian. Wow. Um, then after that I came back and I worked for Bristol Zoo. And after that, I went to Sri Lanka to do animal research, animal research on elephants and monkeys. Wow! So, what did you do with that research? What, what did you? I mean, was... well, I, I was working for I was working for a, a PhD student who's doing his his thesis. So I spent a lot of time living in the bush. That must have been amazing. Well, it was. I mean, it was, you know, it was tropical and it was hot. What was it like to do that? What was what were the highlights of life? What did you look forward to in the morning when you went to bed at night? Think, oh, yeah, tomorrow we're going to do this. Tomorrow we're going to do that. Well, I mean, a lot of it was going to be the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, you you have a, a troop of monkeys and they're your, you know exactly where they're sleeping the night before and you get there at daylight to see... Then wake up. Yeah. And you follow them until the following night. Constantly taking notes and yeah. taking photographs and recording what they're all doing and the time of the year, the seasons, who's mating who, who's mating with her. Who... <sighs> this makes me ask the question, so such close observation of primate society... Did you find similarities between their species and ours in terms of how they organise themselves? Oh, God, I mean, it's, but I mean, it's, we are closely related. I mean, just by primate society. Yeah. I mean, whether it's chimpanzee society or even some of the lower, more the monkey rather than the ape species, the, the, the monkey. I mean, this was Macaca, which one? Uh, it is the, is it the token macaque? I can't remember what its Latin name is, macaca, which is all macaques. It's not fascicularis and it's not... Okay. Mm -hmm. It's gone out of the window. Yeah, I mean, you, there is there are similarities in society that you notice in your own society. The way they their society works is very much the way human society works. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's quite reasonable that we should be all related. Yeah, definitely. 
when I think when I first met you, you'd been in Africa. Mm. You have a long connection with Africa, is that right? No, because I went to after I went to Sri Lanka, I went to Kenya, um, looking for something. Don't know what it was. Um, Why Kenya? What did you think? What well, I mean, you know, naturally, I, I I saw the wild open spaces. And I thought, you know, I want a piece of the action. I want to work in national parks, or I want to do animal research, or I do animal collecting, or something. I want to get involved in wildlife in some some part of Africa. And Kenya happened to be, but I was, I mean, I'd had at least two past students there. So I had inroads. Yeah. I suppose it's called the old boy network. <laughs> and how did you find Kenya? What was it like? Oh, great. Yeah. Whereabouts were you? Where are we all over? Uh, yeah, I was, you know, I'm based out of Nairobi and put Nairobi in 1969 was still, you know, really quiet. It was just, you know, six, six years after independence. Um, was the legacy of that struggle still there? Well, I mean, you know, it's always going to be there. I mean, you don't necessarily see it. Yeah. Um, if I had hung out more with the indigenous population, I would have learned more about it. Yeah. I mean, it's only from subsequent reading yeah. that you actually learn about, you know, I mean, the white man's influence on, on black Africa yeah. and how they were, you know, basically hated eventually because they wanted to rule supreme and they they were fish out of water in a completely foreign land. Um, you know, and it was all about, you know, things about like the Mau Mau uprising, yes. the emergency of 52, 56, when they got their own back. Yeah. The accounts that come out of about the Mau Mau, uh, what the British did to the Mau Mau afterwards. Oh, fuck, I mean, yeah, I mean, beastly, absolutely beastly. I mean, they're still yeah. apologising today. And rightly so. It's yeah. horrendous. It's um, British colonialism has a lot to answer for. Oh, fuck. About it. I mean, just yeah. everywhere. I mean, doesn't matter. I mean, colonialism is really a dirty word. I mean, it was yeah. all the rage in the days when it functioned. Yeah. But as soon everybody in see look at it in hindsight and think, "Fuck, what did we do?" Obviously, we're recording this in Van Moor on Mull. At what point in your life did you come to this house here? Oh, 1978. And what brought you to here in 1978? Uh, I came on holiday with a family who've got a cottage down the road. Ah, which family was that, if you don't mind? Luard. Oh, right, the Luards, okay, right. And what have they told you about Mull? Well, Jock grew up here. Right, okay. Jock, um, he. His early years was at Kilfinnigan, when his mother's family had the big house. 
um, and his all his family, all that, that lot of family were McVeins. And but they'd been but prior to that they'd been at Art Phoenix and prior to that they'd been on Iona. Another minister. I see. <laughs> yes, yes, the abound. Um and the only other person who was related to Jock was um Kenny Way's wife, Fiona. She was a first cousin of Jock's. Much missed Fiona Way, yeah. Very, very. I'd never met her. She, uh, but you can still hear the impact of people when they talk about her. Just well, she was good at backs. <laughs> Bowsing as well, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, she was taught by uh, a particular person called Bruce McManaway. Right. So why, why? Why Mull? Hmm? Why Mull? Why here? Not just why Mull. Because it's why... empty. There was nobody here. And I came to this coastline and I thought, you know, I mean, this is beautiful. I, you know, I'd really love to live here. And I've been looking for a here for, you know, for, for a while, for about 10 years. And all I had to do was come to Mull and here it was. And that was up in, you know, and Jock and Sheila, his wife, organised a gathering of their friends and within an afternoon I'd got a cottage and a job. <laughs> oh my God, that is so different to now. That's incredible. So what, what was your first job then? Oh, kind of, work, who was that? Oh, I worked for... Oh, one of the first jobs was working for James Knight doing the extension of Dervig School. Right. Uh, and the other job I had was building paths for the chalets at Hienish in Timuri, which is the Norman family. All right. Ah. And there's still, I don't know who's, oh, that's right, it's, who lives there now? Um, Rona Norman, who married an American. He's called Gus, I think. I live on the East Coast. Um, and then, after after working in construction and and roads and things, what, what where did you what did you go on to after that? How did you make a living after that? Became a fisherman. Huh? On your own or with? No, okay. I'm working with. I went into partnership with a guy locally. Uh, first, just to fish lobsters around the back of Ulver and things like that. Nice. Then I joined another partnership for, uh, to fish prawns. In Loch Nakiel. In Loch Nakiel, Loch Tua, and all the way around the immediate area. How did you enjoy that? Hard work. Yeah. But I was 27 and I was still young. Um, it was st I was still within my, I was still within my capabilities. Wrong height, far too fucking tall. It's only, I guess, now that one realises that how tall, you know, you're too fucking tall. I mean, you're, you're like, you know, I mean, the only other person of comparable size is Tony Radcliffe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Too fucking tall. How tall are you? Well, I mean... Six four, six five? Six seven. Um, well, but I don't, you know, I mean, I always lied slightly. I mean, I was actually about six, six and three quarters. So, <laughs> it was, you know, six, seven will do. <laughs> Uh, or as it states in your passport, two point zero one. Uh -huh. There we go. Gosh, 
But I have now shrunk, of course, growing up. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah no, this. Um, when did when did you start with the jams? And the, eighty well, interest. The interest was kind of came together in about eighty eighty one. So three four years into your time here. Yeah, I wanted. I mean, I'd left the fishing because I'd had an accident and I'd oh, broken yeah. my leg on a motorbike um, in seventy seven. And I got, you know, there was all sorts of damage, you know, through fishing. Yeah, hunched uh, the time. Well, not so much. You know, I just had vulnerable legs. And I started getting ulcers and abscesses and all sorts of things like that. And it just made it difficult. So, I mean, I basically, I was looking for a job I could do 365 days a year. So the recipes that you use, are they ones you've created yourself? Are they ones from your family? Yeah, or some family ones, some stolen like everybody else i mean that's where i mean you know you want recipe for something and you go into you know you've got umpteen recipe books and you compare notes with all of them yeah and you adapt it to suit what you want yeah. Yeah. i mean sure i mean there are family ones but you know i mean they're all i mean all those recipes are pilfered yeah. from someone and do you have a favourite one at all? Is there one that you always look forward to? Oh, no, not really. I have what's left over. Yeah. yeah. Um, particularly the, your chocolate sauce is one we have to ration. <laughs> well, a lot of people have to ration it. That's um, Christmas time. That's a special for that. Yeah. Oh, God, fuck yeah. I mean, there are people who have it more often than that. Mm. Um, no, I mean, it's, it is very good, but it is, and it is very chocolatey. yeah. But, but the, look at the ingredients. I mean, there's nothing in it apart from syrup and cocoa. How simple. Fantastic. In 1978, there, as you say, there were very few people here. Who are the people that you do remember from this part of the island that stand out? Well, in the croft number one, where Rhoda is now, is Donald McKinnon. Um, whose niece is Margaret McKinnon at the square. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, and he lived in the cottage there with his brother, but they couldn't stand each other, and they lived at opposite ends of the cottage. Donald didn't do anything apart from... He had a, he had a cloth cap and a long, rather scruffy coat. And he lived in his end of the house with his 13 cats, which he didn't let out of the house. Oh, God. That's bonkers. That must have been quite aromatic. Aromatic, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so... So, Croft number one, you've got Donald. Then... Croft number two uh, is still... McCall's. It was McCall's then, except it was Neil and Peggy who were Alistair and Angus, Angus's parents. Mm -hmm. And Neil was from here, as far as I know. Peggy was from Skur. Other end of the island. Other yeah. end of the island. But of course, in those days, I mean, there was much more association. I mean... Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of association between... Of the indigenous people here, there is much more association between the north and the south. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's only amongst the incomers like us um, who have have either turned right or turned left right. when they've come for the mall for the first time. Yeah. And so you have, if you turn right, you're coming to the north end of the island and and there you pretty much stay, unless, of course, you really are keen to meet more people from the other end. Yeah. No, I've always been keen. I've always liked going to the Ross. Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. No, I've got very good pals in the, the Ross. I'm very lucky, I must admit. But, uh... And so... But a lot of people who, you know, come here, I mean, apart from going to Iona, which I never, as far as I'm concerned, I'll never go there again. Because um, it just didn't do anything for me. Uh, I love it. I love going up the knee. It's a beautiful, it's a, for such a small hill, the return of view you get is fantastic. You see back over to Colonsay and Jude, mm -hmm, and that, mm -hmm. oh, it's just... And the folk are great now as well. Well, because they wouldn't sell my jam, I thought, fuck you. <laughs> jam bargoed. <laughs> well, I mean, because, I mean, it wasn't made in Iona and they weren't interested. Fair enough. Well, yeah. Who did you look forward to spending time with? Who was it always a pleasure to see if, if you were out and about? Uh, Nigel and Rosie. Ah, Nigel and Rosie, yes. Yeah, tell us about the Burgesses. Oh, God. I'm hoping to capture them at some point as well. Uh, I've fucking known them since... Well, I first met Lulu Luard and Nigel and Lulu's then-boyfriend, Vic, who still makes appearances around here, all lived on Ered together right. in 1976-77. And I first met Nigel in... About September '77, right. And by the following year, I, you know, I, I, we got on really well. And I'd gone down to, to, the Ross, and they were then living in, Atty McKechnie's old house at High Lee, where Minty is now. Aye, yeah, for sale. I think it was for sale recently. Well, I don't yeah. know. Minty it's was a while, yeah, while yeah. since I was there. Ah. Is there anything, I mean, we've been talking for the best part of an hour, but is, is there anything that you think you'd, your musings on the time, on your time here in Mull, is there anything that you've, you've observed or you've seen change or anything that you think, ah, oh, that's, this is a Well, good it hasn't really changed. I mean, certainly my outlook out there, I mean, looking to Alba and Gometra, I mean, what can change? I mean, you know, I haven't been here long enough to see the trees grow on the other side. I mean, they have planted new trees, but of course, you know, it might be another 50 years before they actually make themselves, present themselves in front of you. Um, no, so my general outlook is the same. I mean, all right, the steading below the road is now becoming a restaurant. Yes. I mean, that's the first thing that's happened below the road anywhere around here since, I guess, Peter Laurie did up the steadings at, at um, at Balagan. yeah, because you know there's so few houses below the road. That anyway, ten years and more ago now. What? When Peter Lloyd did down there? Oh, I think twenty years. Is it? Oh, at Gosh. least. Gosh, aye. And how are you feeling about that? Are you quite looking forward to to the presence of the restaurant? No, I mean I probably will never go. <laughs> I'll go, I'll go to the opening night. Yes. 
Um, but it's not for the likes of me. I mean, why go to a restaurant and spend £20 when you can make the same meal at home for £2.50? For the crack, for senior pals. That's... Well, if you if you do, it's like going to the Bellatroy. I mean, yeah. you don't go to the Bellatroy now because you go there and there won't be anybody there. Yeah. Well, it'll be full of tourists and you won't know anybody. Except for on a Friday night. Except on a Friday night yeah. when the yeah. TSL boys will always be there. Yep, yeah. Yeah, when the tears are out at the end of the night as well. So. Well, that's it, and, you know, they're getting fuller and fuller. And uh, um, the language, of course, is... Joyous. Is, well, it's, it's mull. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Um, no, so, I mean, but the point is that Tom, the landlord, he's going to make money out of people staying in the hotel and the tourists. Yeah. And because mull's becoming a more and more popular place, then the amount of business he will do will escalate. I think they're going to do. I hope they do fantastically. I'm pretty sure they're going to. They're certainly the right people to have it. Mm. I mean, you know, I mean, when I first came here, it was the landlord was Frosty, a guy called David House, who took it taken over in February 1976 from Donnie Mackay, who had John Mackay's dad. Yeah. Uh, who'd had it for umpteen years prior to that, and I think his father even before that. And after Frosty, Frosty lasted five years, then Andrew Arnold yes. had it for 11 years, and it was just so busy at Andrew's. I mean, he had a very good establishment yeah, yeah. and a very good reputation. And it was also part of the community as well. I mean, I think that's the thing. Well, with it was. I mean, you, as well, well I mean, cars. you know, in, at that time, you know, Saturday night in the Bellacroix was fucking pandemonium. It was hard to get in there. There was an enormous queue for the dartboard. And the hard, I mean, whiskey, whiskey, just, I mean, I mean, I think it did close. When I first went there, I think it closed at 10 o'clock. And then I think on Saturday night, you were, it stayed open till 11. Mm. Gosh. Mm. You know, if you were living over here, I either got there on my motorbike or I got there in somebody's car. Um, and you'd get completely stationed. And then top of the hill, everyone would get out in the quarry and there'd be half bottles being passed around. <laughs> and the crack was great. Yeah. Nice. Especially you've got eight people, all with half bottles, all getting fucked. <laughs> and opposite, there was an old, was an old dancing bog. So you could throw your empty half bottles into the dancing bog and you'd disappear. <laughs> That'll be interesting for the archaeologists of the future. Well, half bottles. Yeah. Nice. That's lovely. And who were the crowd that would be there? Would that be Well, I mean yeah, I mean with all the people around here there would be Hector, who was Alistair and Angus's elder brother. Um in those days Angus would have been in Glasgow and and Alistair was married and living somewhere else, but was still working in the North Sea. Right. And then my, you and my skipper lived next door here long bef before my awful neighbour arrived, mm. who was 
You had 20 years of that and more. 30, well, 30 years, I guess. Gosh. No, but I missed. I went to Africa for a lot of it. Um, That's quite a distance to get away from. Who had the croft? Nobody had the croft. The croft was... Oh, Well, the Croft was kind of in dispute. Well, he wasn't in really? dispute. It was It was owned by... Oh, that's right. It was owned by Dougald. Dougald McLean. Everyone was called McLean here. Yeah. And it was owned by Dougald. And Dougald hadn't, wasn't living there because he was quite old. And he he had lived with his sister next door. And how they kept warm, I don't know, because really? they never had a fire. Well, they had a fire, but they couldn't be bothered to go and collect sticks. And she died of hypothermia upstairs. Oh, poor thing. God. Oh, they had a crack in the window. There was a hole in the window. And they could have got the estate to come and s- sort it. But they couldn't be bothered to get hold of anybody on that. Gosh. I mean, you know, it was all... Apathy gone. Oh, totally. Gosh. When was that that she passed on? Was it? I think before I arrived. Right. Um, so I don't know. Seventy-four. Something say say. Yeah. Um, God. And then who else was in, in here? Well, originally there was Flora Ann. She was really nice, and then. Yeah, but she was related to lots of people up at the square. Yeah. Um. Because as I said, as I said, it was all McLean's. And then the next croft along, well, my croft was Donald Allen McLean. He lived in Shetland at the time. So I didn't actually want the croft originally. Really? No, I just asked. I applied to get some land. And he said, oh, I'm thinking of giving up the croft. Would you take over the croft? And it didn't cost much. I got the house and the 22 acres for 500 pounds. Amazing, absolutely incredible. And so, and the rent, and the rent was, I think, it was fifteen pounds a year. That's amazing, and it's made made your life sustainable here. Yeah, I mean, it's given me a base, it's given me a base camp. Yeah, and it's just where I wanted to be. I wanted to be on this coastline, and you know, within two years, I found myself here. We didn't, I didn't ask you about your parents coming to Mull as well. Do, if that's okay. Well, they came because, I mean, you know, I mean, both Hugo and I were living on islands. Where would you go? Uh, Manhattan. And they chose Mull over Manhattan? Uh, they chose Mull over Manhattan. I think quite a few folk would do that. I would. I'm, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Grandma. Well, amazing. I haven't done anything. I've just blethered. <laughs> Perfect. And answered the appropriate questions. <laughs> but not the inappropriate questions. Oh, no, I mean, no, I mean, but I mean, the point is that, you know, I mean, that is only a vague snippet of my life. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time on this, Gremlin. It was a great pleasure to spend time with you. Hope we can catch up again soon. 
There's a couple of moments that I've cut from this episode, as we told other people's stories, and I couldn't check with them before it went out if it was okay to share them. So I may put another edit out of this episode at uh, a later point, once I've had a chance to track a few folk down. And talking of that, I've hidden a little Easter egg for you at the end of the podcast to give you a (laughs) flavour. To help raise the profile of what we do in the winter, can I ask you to take a moment to leave a review of the podcast on whichever platform you listen to, if, if you had time? It helps to raise the profile of the project and it makes it more visible. So thank you so much. If you wanted to support the podcast and the archiving project, as it does take quite a lot of time, please feel free to click on the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com. But with things changing on an hourly basis, obviously don't worry if you can't or don't want to. I'd much, much rather that you listened and went gallivanting with us rather than not. And on that note, thank you so much to our monthly supporters. I greatly appreciate it. Righty. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Take care wherever you are and whenever you are. More in tang. Shenaka day. In my underpants was a pound of chipolatas. <laughs>